1: Um, today, of course, we welcome Paul Vangelisti, um, who every now and then you come across somebody who really, truly has given a lot to this town and to just the literary community in this town. Um, he has worked with and supported so many writers over the years, including um, Bukowski and Amiri Baraka. Where would they be without him? Um, And he just has had an incredible wide-ranging influence over the city. Um, Just just list his various jobs. Um, An editor and reporter for The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, He started the lit journals Invisible City and Ribot. Um, He was a cultural affairs director at KPFK. He got an NEA both as a poet and an NEA as a translator. Um, He has more than 20 books of poetry. Um, And he currently, of course, is the founding chair of the graduate writing program at Otis. And um, we're absolutely delighted to have him here with his latest book, Holy Falsetto with People Dancing.
0: Hi, I'm glad you were able to come on this humid, warm day. Uh, I'm a little, I've been all over the city. I was at commencement this morning with some of the people here, then from commencement to the Pasadena Book Fair then from the Pasadena Book Fair, I got here about 10 minutes ago. So here we are. My mind is somewhere, LA style, somewhere on the freeway. Uh, Baraka used to call, I'd drive him around here, and he used to say, he called this place uh, Cuckoo Land or Disneyland. You know, he says, Where do you leave your mind? Do you leave it at home? You know, it was his, that was his idea. Um, this book. Uh, called Holy Falsetto with People Dancing, I guess, is, as the blurb says, um, uh, an older man's not-so-divine comedy. And uh, I meant it, 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 the model is the the comedy, Dante's comedy. The divine thing was added later by the Catholic Church. So, don't call it, it's called the comedy. In Italian, it's the commedia, right? And um, this is roughly modeled on a heaven and, and a purgatory and a hell or in the order that the Catholic Church prefers it, hell, purgatory, and heaven. I, I think of it the other way. It's more interesting, um, especially as you get older. Right? Um, and the first section, the, 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 the hell and the purgatory are in uh, day book or journal form. That is, they have dates and they have entries. Uh, the final part is a memoir of people uh, I've known, influenced my life, um, anecdotes that influenced my life, etc., uh, in in various parts of the world. And that one is strictly alphabetical, you know, from A to Z with various people fitting in. Um, so it's an alphabetical memoir. In the, I'm going to read just a Tiny bit from the Inferno or Hell section, which is set in Los Angeles. The it, and there the t- the dates and everything are all you'll hear are all kind of messed up. You know, you'll have a date, then you'll go to the next month, then you go back to this month. So you know, it's L.A. the way we live. Uh, and well, I guess most I've been here only 46 years, so um, you know, it's the way we live. And the second part, which I won't read from, um, is my fool's purgatory, me being the fool, which is Italy, where I go to refresh myself from the inferno. uh, And of course, where I often make a fool out of myself. And that part I won't read from, not because I make a fool out of myself, but that is a straight journal thing, what I did this day, travel log, not unlike Goethe's uh, Italian journal, literally. And mine's called the Italian Journal. And then the last part is called Holy Falsetto. So I'll read, like, two or three minutes from the first one, from the um, Inferno, to give you a glimpse of my life in Los Angeles. And then um, we'll read from memoirs of people I've known. Okay? This is a book that I... You know, obviously, you'll hear, this is a book that one can't write until one reaches a certain age. I started writing this book in... 2.06 and I finished more or less in 2.11, I finished this book, and uh, anyway, so, 13 November. Even my horoscope this morning told me to choose words carefully when talking to myself. So it must be Los Angeles addressing dry November air in the lush green and blue bottomless distance. Following paradise out here is an odd communion between people and place. Over the years, there remains a spring day on the West Fork of the San Gabriel, putting a fly upstream on rising fish, as a family of deer feed on the opposite bank, a shorter castaway. Or another soft afternoon, lower down on the river, sandstone cliffs aglow at day's end, with the shadow of a hawk wheeling in rosy light. Or a wordy midnight, not too long ago, about to open another bottle, the kitchen window looking out on the dark, still, and deepening arroyo, aching to be in this room with Maugosha at least another fifty years. Given what Pound at the end of his lifelong poem calls the blue flash and the moments where one reaches beyond, besides, above, below, to what one never expects until it's too late, and we are carried as far as we can never be. 5th November. Because a tall man is a fool, says Aristotle, and the traffic is unbearable, the days much shorter, your eyes often kind to me, as the music too is lost at sea. Along the coast lights are going on and off, even if it's too early to fall asleep and catch the leggy young blonde walking off down the street spinning your fedora on her finger. 16th November, no matter what all those museum fascists try to say, form always follows content, like a hopelessly phallic, prophylactic falsetto. Kenneth Fearing, wrongly attributed to Kenneth Rexroth, shooby doo shoop shoop shooby Poetry, noun, the art of impersonating your imaginary self, Ambrose Bierce, The Devil's Dictionary. 7 December. Target. A suitcase full of sorrow, trying your best to put your shoes on West Coast blues. 8 December. The border running between the past, the impossible, and your heart. One, two, three, four. Sliding and shimmering across a dubious green on the other side of the music's divide. One, two, three, four. Slippery, with the antique, with a name unlikely as the air's paling letters. 11th December. And of all 11 ways to reach 33, one now appeared the most direct. Running north and south, a chill distance began like a shadow lengthening the avenue. Naked ambition, imagined or not, a dutiful desire trapped in the bones. One plus one plus one the three principal streets of which only hope remains unwilling in Los Angeles. 3rd December. At last we entered the hidden road, hoping to come out again in a brighter place. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? How blonde is the money? Or blind, depending on how many hours it took to get across your invisible city. Oh. The rest is hardly a question of common sense, but more one of attitude or chance, demeanor, lucky to watch yourself tie a shoe in the fading afternoon light. How bloody is that? How late? Now we're gonna skip to the uh, holy falsetto with people dancing. And here I, I, I wanted, you saw I read about some locations. Here I wanted to talk about locations. The irony, as you all know, I'm I'm preaching to the choir here, but the irony, as you all know, about Los Angeles is that for being such a rootless place, in my estimation, the great literature of Los Angeles, and there has been, believe it or not, um, is incredibly and uh, ineluctably tied to place. So I'm I'm trying to talk about place today. I can't read this whole thing. And then it goes back. So uh, I'm I'm in the alphabet now. H. I never actually met Laura Huxley, nee Archera, born in Turin in 1911 and died in 2007 at 96, nor old man Huxley, who died five years before I came to Los Angeles. I was driving a cab after quitting graduate school. And it was a busy Saturday night when I decided to hit a bar just before midnight to help me through the end of my shift. I was on Beverly in East Hollywood, not far from Western, and thought about a dive that Bukowski and I had gone to some months back. It was the kind of place we liked then, dead quiet, usually empty and cheap, serving only bottles of beer and short dogs of fortified wine. We stuck to the beer and the place somehow managed to get Bukowski talking about the old days right after the war when he had just gotten out of LA City College and was trying to write stories. Anyway, I parked around the corner, put my cabbie hat under my arm, regulations warranted that for our own protection we wear the hat at all times when outside of our cabs, and walked to the bar on Beverly called the Bobbin Inn. You've been there? (laughs) Oh, you did too, yeah. I drove one here and in San Francisco. Anyway. Coming through the door, I was hit with a wall of noise and smoke. This is the empty place, right? Coming through the door, I was hit with a wall of noise and smoke. What had happened to that quiet dive Bukowski and I had found shelter in? This place was packed, and with the exception of one little gent holding forth at a crowded table, it looked as if I were the only man in the place. I made my way through a few tablefuls of stairs to the bar at the b- I made my way through a, f- a few tablefuls of stairs to the bar at the back. Just as I lay my yellow Cabby's hat on the bar and turned my back to the room, a tall, long haired blonde said, Can I help you? I ordered a miller, and pushed the dollar bill over the bar. The blonde was back right away with the beer and slid her index finger over my hat as she made the change. We were smiling at each other when a stack of wooden beer cases hit the top of the bar inches from my hat with a loud whack. And I looked into the leer of a 200 pound plus butch bartender saying, everything satisfactory? I said perfectly, thanks, and tried to look straight ahead across the bar drinking from the beer bottle as deliberately as possible, not wanting to seem as if I couldn't wait to beat it out of there. I stared at nothing and drank some more until an attractive brunette, mid to late 20s, sat on the stool to my right and asked what I was doing there. They think you're a vice cop, checking the place out, or you'd be in big trouble. See the black girl with the tall boots? She's particularly upset." I let my eyes wander past the brunette to a crowded table where the black girl with the boots was now standing, her left boot on the chair and her right hand rubbing up and down the dark leather. The hand stopped rubbing and slipped into the top of the boot and pulled up a stiletto that she started pumping up and down inside her boot top. As I looked away and turned toward the brunette, I said, "'I think I'd better be going.'" You can't, she said, until you dance with me. Take your hat and we'll make it out the door over there after this number. We danced a slow tune close and she kept pulling me closer. She said in my ear, they don't like any of this, but tell me, what the hell are you doing in here? I explained that I used to come here with a friend when it was just a neighborhood bar. She rubbed against me as the music came to a stop and then, still holding my hand, pulled me with her toward the side door. We came out in the parking lot, and she asked if I would drive her home in my cab, if I had one. I said I did, and we walked up the alley and around the corner where I opened the back door for her and let her in. She said her name was Diane, and she lived in the Hollywood Hills. We pulled into a driveway somewhere up in Beechwood Canyon and went in a side door into a large living room with beams and lots of glass. She said she'd grown up in this house. Her parents were dead. and had, had, until recently, been living there with her husband. She walked to the end of the room and returned with two big tumblers of whiskey. She said that she was separated from her husband and was probably going to get a divorce. She also said that she left her lover down at the bar and boy would she be pissed. She came close, sat on my lap and told me I was sweet and started outlining my lips with her finger when there was a sudden loud crash outside. I almost knocked her off my lap when she said, ''Don't worry, that's only Mrs. Huxley.'' ''Mrs. who?'' I said. ''Laura Huxley,'' she said. ''You know, that crazy writer's wife, the guy who wrote the book about taking mescaline and expanding your mind.'' ''Aldius Huxley?'' I mumbled. ''Yeah, yeah, he was our neighbor, always wandering around, stoned out of his bird and falling down the hill. He was blind as a bat, but didn't believe in glasses. Laura, she was his second wife, stays up all night writing, painting, listening to music. She's great. Oh, I said, (laughs) having that sinking feeling that I ought to be getting back to work. Bob Croson recalled how he went with friends one Easter morning, this is another character appears earlier, Bob Croson recalled how he went with friends one Easter morning to the old Cornet Theater on La Cienega to hear Aldous Huxley read from his new book, The Doors of Perception. The place was packed and many of Huxley's admirers, including himself, had taken mescaline, Bob said and were puking in the paper bags. <laughs> Huxley was late and the theater was a buzz. Bob who had a seat at the end of the first raw, saw Huxley Bob who had a seat at the end of the excuse me Bob who had a seat at the end of the first row saw, saw Huxley without glasses book in hand on his way toward the wings where the stage and the stage people in the front started applauding and then Huxley walked straight into the proscenium banging his head and falling down the applause according to Bob grew even louder <laughs> Certainly, a writer's—this is I—certainly a writer's paradise, though no less ephemeral and perfect for that. Not unlike what Dante claims at the end of his comedy, where the eternal face is glimpsed, and in the poet's words, "Un punto solo me maggior letargo che venticinque secoli all'impresa che fe' ammirar l'ombra d'Argo." A single moment makes for deeper oblivion than five and twenty centuries upon the enterprise that made Neptune wonder at the shadow of the Argo. Deliberately, in his opinion, squalid interiors in the apartment of such a moral poet. The symbol crashes probably more than once. It's past midnight and there hasn't been a sound. Stop illustrating the goddamn passage he thought. It's not that much further. What might have been a breath on the other side of the doorway, and he wondered about Irene. Oh, shit, Seamus, we're deep in it now. Idlet was poet John Thomas' surname, which he dropped, he said, because of arrest warrants for failure to pay child support in Texas and Maryland. John Thomas, 1930-2002, born the same day as Bo Diddley, he always liked to remind me, and not very far apart, he in Baltimore, Diddley in D.C., I don't wish to recall the last 10 years or so of his life, a curious affection and embarrassment almost would pass between us the few times we'd meet. This was after he had apologized about his then wife in one of the most painful phone conversations I'd ever had. He was writing again, although with nowhere near the skill and electricity his earlier work possessed, writing that he would have ridiculed and picked apart when I first met him. I prefer to remember John, all six foot six of him, 290 pounds, when he marched through my door, knapsack full of books in one hand and a gallon of Dago Red in the other, just after nine on a winter's night in 1970. He proceeded to take a handful of diet pills, wash them down with wine, and start talking nonstop until 3 a.m., many more diet pills and an empty jug later, occasionally interrupting our chatter to read poems and entries from his day book. From that moment on, I was hooked, listening to a man who insisted that his mind was the most erogenous of organs, and who was the most extraordinary autodidact I'd ever known. Until he left his wife Rose and his daughter Gabrielle, if he wrote at all outside of his day books, he wrote as ruthlessly and candidly as anyone about the grand desperate failure of poetry in our time. From Tarquin, the weather here is different. The children are brown, have never seen snow, so everything is different. I, Tarquin, sit in the afternoon sun making lists, drawing maps of that realm All else now merely possible. John Thomas was one of my masters. I still have John's extraordinary basso filling my head with Pound's basic admonition that modern poetry must be at least as well written as prose. I still heed his witty dismantling of sloppy talky verse that began suffocating American poetry in the 60s and continues doing so to this day in writing programs across the land. I don't wish to recall his squalid and disgraceful end, as I fear being somewhat moralistic in my repulsion, since John often reminded that, after all, most of us die like dogs. I do remember the importance and brilliance of John Thomas Idlett's writing, how he offered my generation of poets a way out of the mainstream nonsense and academic impasses that plagued poetry in the 70s and 80s. He taught so much as a writer Nowhere more vividly than in his masterwork, From Patagonia. Most writers would regard Southern California as banishment enough. To live in Los Angeles, a minor poet of some local repute. Surely this satisfies any interpretation of the doctrine of sufficient disgrace. Well, for me, nothing has ever proved sufficient. The fatal flaw, amigo. I've cast my ballot with Plato's, albeit for different reasons, scratched my own poor name on the Ostrakhan, voted myself right out of the Republic. So, and there must be no stopping at Harar, because, follow the argument where it leads, through a jumble of metaphor, because even in Harar, the person from Porlock knocks every day, the perfect excuse. I do get visitors now and then as you will see, but never from Porlock. In Patagonia there are no excuses. K. Okay. This is for the man who opened this bookstore in 1972. It was a furniture store. Opened this bookstore in 1972, and he died of AIDS in 1994, and the bookstore closed. And then two years later, in 1996, it reopened. And what we have, this glorious incarnation today, Skylight Books. William Koki Iwamoto. 1947-1994, was the founder and owner of Chatterton's Books in Los Angeles from 1972 to 1994, when their doors closed shortly after Cokie's death. One of the most generous and attractive persons I've ever known. I first met Cokie when he worked at another excellent store in the late 60s and 70s, Papa Box Books in West Los Angeles, managing their poetry section. It might be hard to imagine today that a poetry section was important enough to have a buyer, let alone in some cases, like Papa Box and Chatterdon's, for poetry to be one of the largest sections in a bookstore. In any case, Chatterdon's was large, spacious, and full of light, and was one of the few stores in Los Angeles where one could find new quality paperbacks that were not the latest thing to be puffed up by the New York or LA Times. Cokie became a good friend and tennis partner, and at one point published a chapbook of mine, The Tender Continent, in 1974, the first and last publication Chatterton's ever attempted. Cokie managed to sell most of the small edition, but soon confessed that a literary bookstore was risky enough. Publishing poetry, he said, was just too crazy. Walking into Chatterton's for me was like walking in a Cokie's house. One was a guest and was treated accordingly. Even toward the end, when the stock began diminishing and the ravages of disease began to tell on Cokie's usually elegant and gracious manner, Chatterton's was still a destination for me. A sane and quiet place outside of the mindless waste and personality-driven anxiety that too often characterizes the culture of this city. In my first alphabet poem, the 1986 sequence, Los Alephs, Koki occupies the letter K. Knowing you 13 years without knowing that in Japanese theater, knowledge is in the face, not the feet, without knowing that no masks are known to shift expressions with the light, keeping marvel in the voice or dominion, Koki no wonder these 13 years kindness remains your necessity and i would like to skip to the end here to i apologize some of you heard this but it makes a good ending <laughs> by the way all almost all of these people i've mentioned the ones look red in this space okay the poets except for this except for this I met Igor Stravinsky, 1882-1971, through my college chum, Leonardo Vecchina. His mother, Irene Vecchina, was one of the composer's agents, and Lynn was squiring around the old maestro and his wife while they were in San Francisco to dedicate Zellerback Hall at UC Berkeley. It was May 1968. I was just back from Trinity College in Dublin, full of poetic and political zeal in those heady times. Mrs. Vakina was a white Russian who, as an infant, had fled the revolution with her mother via Shanghai and had settled among the then sizable Russian immigrant community in San Francisco. Len's father was an Italian from Turin, who, if I recall, imported Italian eyeglass frames from a small office near the ferry building. I saw Len's father only a handful of times. He'd been divorced for many years, a bald, dapper, quite quiet European, an apparent man of the world. My ex-wife Margaret and I grew close to Irene Vakina, especially after returning from Ireland. We would often spend Sunday afternoons at her condo near Aquatic Park talking literature, music, and politics. In any case, I gave Len a hand with the Stravinskys. The maestro was already quite physically infirm and attended the dress rehearsal and was backstage for the performance of L'Histoire du Soldat, Robert Kraft wasn't present, which I certainly regretted, as I'd been reading his Boswellian turns about life with IS in the New York Review of Books. To say that Stravinsky was irascible would be an understatement. He was colossally so. To have been in his presence was as close as I've come to that state of animus called genius, however suspect and problematic that term may be. I'll single out a few occasions of Maestro's peculiar wit and vision. Early in the dress rehearsal, Stravinsky stopped the conductor, Gerhard Samuel, 1924-2008, director of the Oakland Symphony and a champion of contemporary music. This is always poor, poor man and a champion of contemporary music. Helped to his feet, Stravinsky began shouting up at the stage, Conductors do not wave arms and head. They just keep time like this. One, two, three, four... Stamping out the beat of the passage being rehearsed. Later, at some technical pause, the maestro began fussing and wanting to know what was going on in Paris, as I had brought along a little portable radio with earplug, some of you remember those, to keep up with events during the Paris strikes. Soon I was able to report that the students were in control of the Champs-Elysees, which immediately elicited a cry of distress from his French wife, Vera, because some friends owned apartments there. The maestro maestro turned and said to all assembled, I hope they burn the whole damn thing down. During the sold-out performance, Len and I were backstage with IS, chatting and keeping him company with a fifth, of black label, which I had slipped backstage at the maestro's request. In spite of his failing kidneys, IS was a stalwart with the bottle. The worst thing about growing old, he told us, is outliving your friends and having no one to talk to. That's why I like talking to you. You are young. Even if you don't know anything, you still believe and haven't given up. (laughs) The worst people in the world are middle-aged and should all be shot. (laughs) Or, pointing at his empty glass, he took his neat He said, I'm a prisoner in this goddamn body. As the performance was drawing to a close, Stravinsky asked Len and me if we were students. We said that we were recently graduated, and Len volunteered that he was considering law school and that I wanted to be a poet. Stravinsky fixed me with one of his myopic stares and said, remember, young man, if you want to be in the avant-garde, you must be impeccable. He grinned and lifted his glass. When it was time for Stravinsky to appear at the end of the performance, it took him an eternity to shuffle from his place in the wings out to center stage. Literally. If you watch big stage, right? Four or five minutes to get to the center of the stage from the wings, right? Two people, you know. Anyway, when it was time for Zdravinsky to appear at the end of the performance, it took him an eternity to shuffle from his place in the wings out to center stage. He placed one foot close in front of the other and simply alternated them as the audience rose with thunderous applause. When he finally reached his spot, he had a polite smile in his face and gave as curt and impeccable a bow as I have ever seen. In the final entry I'm going to read, one of the first programs I did in 1974 as Cultural Affairs Director of KPFK Radio was an hour-long interview with Hubert Selby Jr., who read here and read in the theater in the back, 1928-2004, whose book Last Exit to Brooklyn, 1966, remains one of the most original works of fiction written in post-war America. I came to know Selby earlier that year through a friend and former neighbor who owned a restaurant in West Hollywood, the Studio Grill. I invited Selby and his wife, Suzanne, to dinner and was impressed by the intensity of his passion for writing. When I took the job at the radio station, I was, among other things, determined to have Selby recognized as an important writer. The interview, airing at 9 p.m., concluded with Selby reading from last exit. In less than a week, I received a notice from the FCC stating the Federal Communications Commission, stating that I and the station had 30 days to show cause why our license shouldn't be revoked, as the program contained obscene and objectionable material. Much to her credit, my boss, program director Ruth Hirschman, now Seymour, told me to stay calm and talk to our lawyers. The lawyer in Washington, D.C., whose name I can't recall, asked me if the work were ever published and if I had gone through any legal difficulties and and if it had gone through any legal difficulties in the past. Fortunately, the work had not only been published by Grove Press, but a chapter of it in an earlier form published in the Provinceton Review had survived an obscenity challenge in the Rhode Island Supreme Court in 1961. I forwarded this information to our lawyer, and the FCC was placated. In 1976, after my first interview with Amiri Baraka, we somehow got on the subject of Selby, or Cubby, as his friends called him, living and writing out here in Disneyland. Baraka said he got to know Cubby through a mutual friend, Gilbert Sorrentino, with whom Baraka worked on Culture magazine, and that Cubby would always show up to parties with the scariest characters he'd ever seen, maintained Baraka. Nodding toward his six-foot-four, 250-pound bodyguard, whose knuckles on both hands were one continuous callus, Baraka noted that these friends of Selby's were infinitely more terrifying. He also said that I should say hello to Cubby for him, using the following formula. Tell him that Bud says hello. Seeing my puzzled expression, he explained that Selby had told him about it stay in a psych ward at Bellevue where Selby spotted one particular inmate walking up and down, mumbling to himself, none other than jazz legend Bud Powell. In spite of the circumstances, Selby was elated and immediately went up to Powell to tell him he was one of the greatest and he would seen and admired his performances in clubs around town to which Powell answered, Shaking head and jowls. So, Baraka repeated, Tell him Bud said, hi." I would see Selby several times over the years, and though not necessarily a friend, I always considered him one of those writers whose integrity was exemplary. Though I read most of Selby's work, nothing seemed to me to possess the sheer gravity and verbal energy of Last Exit. However, one grand creation was certainly enough, and I continued to reread and assign Selby's books throughout the years after I'd returned to teaching. I saw him last one evening in 2002 when the poet Mark Salerno, then a student in our writing program at Otis College, invited Selby to be part of our Visiting Writers series. By then, after the 1989 film based on Last Exit and another screen adaptation in 2000 of his novel Requiem for a Dream, 1978, Selby had attained an almost cult status. It was interesting to see a new generation of admirers listening to Selby Reed, not so different from those of us who listened to him in the 1970s, convinced we were hearing the real thing. Selby had chosen a new story about his favorite subject, working class Brooklyn, which he had been writing about for more than 25 years he had been living in Los Angeles. His delivery was easy and precise and belied his rather sickly appearance. The story took place around closing time in a neighborhood bar and was not unlike some of the best writing in Last Exit, if perhaps a little sparer and less full of rage. Selby received a prolonged and then standing ovation. As Mark and I walked him out of the building, Selby looked more frail and shaky than ever, heading to his car in the dim light of the parking structure. As usual, Baraka was right. Tell him, Bud, said hello.